Okay, hi and welcome to episode 9 of the We Do Science podcast. Today is a very special episode because it's a topic that um, I have a huge amount of interest in. It's a very controversial area in many different ways and it's a hugely misunderstood area and we are going to be getting into various angles on supplement science. So today on the podcast I have Kamal Patel with me who's the director of examine.com um, and I'll, uh, uh, hey Kamal, how are you doing? I'm doing well, how are you? Great, so I was just about to jump in and start telling uh, our listeners uh, everything about you and what you do but actually uh, it's going to be easier if you introduce uh, yourself and just just briefly um, why don't you just uh, uh, tell us just a little bit about what happens at examine.com sure so uh, sort of the 20 second intro is that at examine.com we try to compile all the science related to nutrition supplementation um, based on the primary studies and uh, systematic reviews that have been done and provide an objective location for anybody, the layperson or the researcher, to see what the latest studies are um, and what meta-analyses say and what researchers' interpretations of those studies are. Yeah, that's great. And I see, I think as people start to get into this podcast, they'll be starting to get to familiar with the fact that, you know, context is key is something I raise all the time. I'm, I'm always talking about the fact that in science we, you know, we do publish means. It isn't necessarily, um, you know, one's individual situation when you're looking at research. But in the last podcast, I had Alan Aragon and Brad Schoenfeld on, and we were talking about nutrient timing and various other things. But we did uh, uh, get into an area that both of them are very passionate about, which, of course, is this whole area of uh, good science and bad science and pseudoscience and so on. So before we sort of get stuck into supplements and lots of juicy areas in there, what, you know, I mean, is supplements, uh, is this a clean science? Is it a well-established, uh, a scientifically controlled area? I mean, what, you know, why, what, what, I mean, why is supplements possibly an area of controversy? I would say that, uh, so pharmaceuticals is an area that has gotten a lot of attention in the news. And what was that movie uh, with Leonardo DiCaprio with that crazy accent where he's in <laughs> Africa and it's about some pharmaceutical controversy? You know what I'm uh, talking about? Oh, yeah. Oh, is that Blood Diamond? Yeah, maybe yeah. that was. Yeah, okay. I don't know. I thought, so uh, yeah. I think if there was to be a movie about supplements, it might be somewhat similar. Uh, people think that because supplements might not do as much, they might not be as strong in effect as pharmaceuticals, uh, maybe there wouldn't be as much controversy about uh, study funding and uh, maybe adverse effects, but there is. Um, when I was in college, maybe about 15, 20 years ago, uh, one of the players on our football team, American football that is, um, died from taking um, too much or a combination of ephedrine and some other supplements. And that's simply because he was not aware of the true effects of the supplement because um, supplement policy does not enable uh, information transparency. And it's a, it's a tough area because supplement companies make a ton of money. They don't have a lot of um, 
incentive to be forthright. They cherry pick studies. Um, not all of them are bad, obviously, but it's a huge, huge market. I don't remember how many millions or billions of dollars. Um, and it's very difficult to wade through for the average person, even for me, um, and I have a little bit of background on the subject. So uh, it is a little bit of a dirty underbelly, I'd say. Yeah, it's oh, it's a difficult one. I mean, as a as a nutritionist, I'm very much into the whole idea of food first and all that. And of course, once you start delving into that topic, there's uh, plenty of people out there who start going on about how, <clears throat> you know, eat clean, eat, you know, don't eat dirty and there's toxins and problems in food and of course there's uh, some fairly twisted research backing up you know certain kinds of foods there's the whole gray area of whether or not organic is good organic is bad mm -hmm. there's functional foods i mean the list goes on and of course supplements uh, i always tell my you know my students and my own patients and whatnot that um you know supplements are not instead ofs um you've still you know there's a there's sort of sort of a functional hierarchy of of where supplements might fit in but of course people don't realize that supplements themselves vary considerably and sort of what's written on on the label is not necessarily what's in the product um uh, there could be like you say some banned substances which of course those of us that work in elite sport i mean i know i'm working with a professional boxer right now who uh very high end uh boxer um was banned uh, because he was taking a pre-workout supplement and, mm. uh, you know, a substance was found in his urine and uh, that's like a three or four year ban in, um, uh, in this particular field. And um, fortunately, you know, he's now aware of that and uh, hopefully that will work out. Um, and of course, like you say, there's also that other scenario where people can die taking supplements. Uh, it, it, we've got this idea that you know, drugs are dangerous and drugs are powerful things, but supplements are somehow safe. And and I guess one of the biggest things that I come across is some people definitely feel more is better. You know, like uh, you take one pill to have, you know, a certain effect, uh, like fish oils, for example, you know, you know, more is better. So, I mean, you know, I guess there's a lot in what I've just said, of course, um, but just take us down the dangers route. First. Sure. So if you skim off the top the supplements that are not dangerous and even mega doses, you're left with, you know, 95% of supplements. So off the top, you can take off vitamin K. Uh, that's one of the only popular supplements that is not dangerous and effective. Um, and it's a fat soluble vitamin. So some people don't know that. But um, everything, almost everything from there on can be dangerous in high amounts, even vitamin D. So um, a few years ago, the United States changed its dietary guidelines for vitamin D, or its um, guidelines for vitamin D, uh, I think doubling or quadrupling the recommended amount. Um, my first actual nutrition research job, primary research, was uh, being one of the people hired to do this research. So I was low on the totem pole, um, you know, just reading the studies, extracting out the data, um, making sure that uh, all the side effects were listed. So as I was doing that, I found that, so there's the overdose studies where uh, the bottle said that, you know, the each pill had 2,000 IUs, but they got it wrong by a magnitude of order, or even two magnitudes of order, so it really had 20,000 IUs or 200,000 IUs. So in those studies, 
there were some side effects like soft tissue calcification, for example. But um, what we kind of didn't realize and also what the government didn't realize is that vitamin D is a very individualized nutrient. So it's not just that because I have darker skin, I would take, you know, five times longer in the sun to uh, make vitamin D. It's that person by person, genetic variability in absorption and production can be very different. And depending on that, I could overdose on vitamin D much more easily than somebody else. And that's not the type of genetic test that you would ever get either from your physician or through 23andMe or another genetic testing service. So it's really the Wild West in terms of nutrients when you megadose them and you combine them with other nutrients. So if you take a lot of vitamin D and you don't combine that with enough vitamin K, uh, then that could be dangerous for a host of reasons. So even things that are deemed to be fairly safe, like vitamin D, could be dangerous. And that's even ignoring other things uh, that are more obviously dangerous, like some testosterone boosters and fat loss supplements and stuff like that. Yeah. No, it's a good point. And of course, people, they do forget that, that when we're taking supplements, you know, we're taking things that, I mean, for the most part, it's either something they're familiar with because they've heard it before, like vitamin D or vitamin D, (laughs) Uh, or it's some complex sounding name that they've never heard before and it all sounds rather complicated. But either way, you can look it up and they'll say, yeah, you know, it's something that occurs in natural biochemistry. You know, uh, it, it, I can see this product is involved in energy metabolism or fat loss or immune enhancing. So I'm just going to take a bunch of this stuff. Um, but in reality, what you're doing is taking it in quantities that far exceed what would be found um, in the diet and may not always, of course, and in some cases there is a benefit to megadosing, but may not necessarily do what you've read because you're taking it in such uh, high amounts. And then, of course, there's the other subject, which we'll get into in a little while, which is um, you know potential interactions and and mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the the sort of the effects of synergism and so on. So, but I mean, just you know, can you just tell us a little bit more about? you know, the, the, the sort of, the, you know, issues with dosaging. Sure. So uh, there's a continuum of issues with dosing. On one end is not dosing enough or, you know, the, the popular connotation for supplements is that if you take this, you're probably just going to pee it out. So that is true to some extent for a lot of supplements, but... Um, There's the whole, like, fat-soluble nutrients. You know, a lot of people will diet, you know, if they're on a cutting cycle, not eating a ton of fat, taking vitamin D, vitamin K, and vitamin A uh, without much fat, then you're absorbing maybe 5 to 10% of it, and you need those fat-soluble vitamins when you're cutting. It's actually more important than, than when you're bulking because you're not getting much from food. So that's not something that a lot of people think about. Um, On the other end is that, Um, I've heard this analogy that the human body is like a Ferrari and would you go into your Ferrari's engine and just, you know, shuffle some things around, cut a cord here or there, you know, add some extra oil? No, you wouldn't because the Ferrari is made to be an efficient machine. Anything you change could have drastic effects. Uh, This isn't a bicycle that you're changing. So we can't understand our body 
just like we can't understand a complex sports car engine. So feeding that body something where you don't know what the dosage does and you don't know how it interacts, it can be a fool's errand because polypharmacy is something that's looked down upon from the medical establishment. But polysupplementation really is not a big issue for some reason, whereas it should be. Um, in order for a supplement to do something, it has to have an effect. So you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't have a supplement that has a physiological effect but has no chance of side effect because anything that changes your physiology in a way that is not natural has a chance of having a side effect. And a lot of the times those effects don't come up because um, animal studies are the basis for a lot of supplement research, but animal studies just they don't do typically what supplement manufacturers claim they do, um, not just because of animal physiology and animal genetics, uh, but also because of predictive power. So there was a study maybe a year or two ago about uh, predictive power, looking at animal studies and human studies in terms of effectiveness of a drug or in terms of toxicity and side effects. I don't remember the exact numbers, but it, uh, I think they looked at 24 studies and maybe around a sixth of the animal studies showed the didn't or did show toxicity whereas in human studies all of the drugs had toxicities which means that five out of six studies uh, do not have sufficient toxicity data from animals and that makes sense because when you look at the digestive tract of an animal it's often very much different from a human and when you look at nutrients you know a lot of animals can produce vitamin C a lot of animals lack some enzymes that we have to break down medications and supplements. So um, animals are good for sort of hypothesis generation, I think, but maybe not so great for actual data for effectiveness and toxicity. Yeah. I'm, I mean, you know, as I hear you say that, of course, we're opening up a can of worms here. I think we could do five podcasts on this. There's so many different areas here, of course, uh, I mean, one thing that crops to mind, of course, is this business of people take a supplement assuming that it's just going to work, uh, like immediately, and, and uh, uh, they don't necessarily realize that it's going to take, a, a, I mean, there's a certain dosage, like you mentioned, um, so there's a dose dependence there, it may take a period of time, which might require not just one administration, like when you take an aspirin or a ibuprofen for example you kind of expect it to work immediately but when you take again vitamin d vitamin d um so let's talk uh let's talk a little bit a bit about them pharmacokinetics um i mean what you know is there anything that springs to mind that you could tell us about pharmacokinetics and the importance of that yeah so um per nutrient or supplement there's a lot of issues that never come up so Going back to vitamin D, for example, um, vitamin D is stored in the fat, and oftentimes people will make a lot of health changes at once. Like one year will be the year that they A, start taking supplements and uh, come up to, to par with, um, I don't know if you've heard of triage theory, so if you, if you lack some uh, micronutrients, then possibly over time, um, you might still be living okay and functioning, but certain systems might not operate optimally. So your immune system might, uh, you know, go lower on the pole of um, needing attention from your body. So let's say somebody is losing weight, gaining muscle, starting taking supplements and eating healthy all in the year 2014. So 
if you spend more time outside, you're getting more vitamin D. If you take vitamin D, then you're getting vitamin D. Uh, you store it in your fat, and then you're losing weight. So what happens when you lose a bunch of weight in one year is that if you stored up vitamin D in there, it's all being released. Um, whereas naturally, people wouldn't lose that much weight that fast because people don't really get up to three, 400 pounds naturally. So when you're releasing all that active vitamin D, you have a situation where you could have soft, soft tissue calcification, you could have some mental um, and nervous system issues because you have a lot higher serum levels of vitamin D than you would if you're just taking it and not having a weight change. And that's not something that physicians really advise for because um, I don't know if it's the same in the UK, but here in the US, physicians get maybe one to two hours of nutrition education. So you would never get to that level of granularity in detail um, for either dosage or pharmacokinetics. So it's a very important issue that when somebody is doing a lot of things at once for their health, um, things might interact not just uh, you know in your fat, but in your digestive tract, in your blood, in your liver, in your kidneys. Um, and it's very hard to figure out. I mean, one person can only know so much about nutrition in general unless you're studying it for your PhD. So it's a very complex subject, which is why I think it's probably advisable for most people just to focus on one supplement at a time. Then you can track your progress, you can keep a log, and you can make sure that you're not combining things that might be dangerous. Yeah, no, that's an excellent piece of advice, and I think it's extremely important to help people understand that there really is no way of knowing what did or didn't work. Uh, even if you're really careful and, like you say, just try one thing at a time. Usually people are only going to give it a week or so before they try and judge whether something works or not. And uh, uh, I mean, why don't you just give us an idea then of, I mean, how long for some supplements does it actually take? I mean, given obviously, chances are someone's not even taking the right product for the right reasons. But let's just say they're taking, you know, fish oils, vitamin D, that, uh, probiotics, that sort of thing. You know, the more common and most useful supplements for most people, that way we can make it a little bit more useful to the listeners. I mean, what sort of timings? I just want to illustrate to the listener just how significant this situation can be. So fish oil is a pretty interesting one because um, you've probably seen some people, at least in years past, not so much nowadays, uh, some nutrition gurus would advise to take 10, 20, up to 30 fish oil pills a day. Uh, before people started thinking about rancidity and other issues. So um, this doesn't come up very much in studies because often they'll look at intermediate outcomes like after a week or after two weeks. But most people don't feel the effects of fish oil right away, you know, in the next day or two. Some people, when they take a huge amount, do say that they feel an effect within a day or two. But in studies I've seen, they never measure the effect right away and um, you know, in years past, I haven't felt, felt the effect right away. As far as omega-3, omega-6 balance, that's something that takes two to three years to turn over. So um, if you're eating less omega-6 and taking in fish oil either through diet or through supplements, um, you're very slowly changing your omega-6, omega-3 ratio. Um, I remember I got mine tested maybe five or six years ago. Um, I think you can maybe... I don't remember, uh, William Harris maybe is the guy who runs the test, but um, if you get that and you check your ratio after changing your diet, it will just almost imperceptibly move if you test it after a few months. It'll take a year or maybe two years for that to change. And I would presume, I'm not sure, but that might be 
when you would feel the effects of having a different ratio in terms of overall health. Um, as far as something like turmeric, turmeric has a, a quicker effect, uh, but it's not as quick as something like aspirin. And frankly, I'm not sure why uh, things like aspirin, Advil, you know, acetaminophen have so much quicker um, effect time than do supplements. I think it might be that once something uh, is powerful enough to be an over-the-counter um, medication, it's not really thought of as a supplement anymore. So very powerful things usually are pharmaceuticals um, or over-the-counter drugs, but supplements typically are weaker and probably because of that also take a little bit longer to work. Yeah, I mean, perhaps a factor there might be that drugs, which are invariably substances or chemicals that are alien to the body um, directly or indirectly manipulate you know chemistry or physiology you know blocking pathways changing signals that sort of thing whereas nutrients are used uh, and incorporated by the body and and you know sort of a bit like you know making ingredients or or to build a cake or whatever is kind of a an incorporated system controlled by the body where there's a familiarity. Um, I, I've looked into that myself a bit, and I think uh, that, that, that may be why it takes longer. I don't know. I'll get someone on the podcast to answer that. that yeah, thing. it's actually it's a really interesting question because yeah. um, sometimes I've thought, you know, let's say turmeric, is part of the reason why some people don't feel it simply because they're not taking a form that gets absorbed? Mm. You know, and that could be true of a lot of other supplements as well. So if you're taking something in its optimal form, you know, in a liposomal form or something, and you're taking a lot of it, then will you feel a quick effect? I'm not really sure because there's not a ton of studies. Like no. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the S word, uh, studies, um, since this is We Do Science. So let's just, just go back to the sort of scientific sort of evidence-based approach to this. I mean, what, what you guys do really well is... Um, allow the reader of your you know your materials and your your work there to go through a very specific process to filter out studies and other information which may be misleading or, or useless so do, do you want to like you know do you want to give give us an idea of from your point of view at examine what is the right way to approach um, you know plowing through the literature to uh, determine the you know the usefulness of a of a supplement sure so what i do um my method has changed over the years so when i started researching nutrition um i would go to pubmed you know and i would i would type in a search term and i would find studies and just find any free ones and start reading them over the time it's changed um eventually i started looking for monographs from you know reputable institutions or from nonprofits um, and then I started including clinicaltrials.gov, which is um, the federal U.S. federal government's website that houses all clinical trials that have been done. So when an uh, institution is conducting a trial, they have to submit their protocol to the federal government, and they have to submit their results and adverse effects as well. At uh, an old job of mine, um, I worked at a place called Evidence-Based Practice Center. There's, I think, 12 or 13 in the U.S. and Canada. They're hired by the federal government to do research on um, any health issue that ends up being a policy issue. So, for example, when I started, vitamin D was the big one. Uh, my next project was prostate cancer. So the government was trying to find 
uh, all the evidence for all the treatments for prostate cancer to see whether uh, watching and waiting was a good strategy for low-grade cancer or whether you should try more aggressive treatment. So uh, when we were doing that, we were also assigned clinicaltrials.gov to um, quality check the protocols. So um, supplement manufacturers are not the only uh, companies that have perverse incentives. So um, pharmaceutical companies will often, you know, not spend as much time um, rigorously collecting adverse effect data as they do efficacy data. Also, in terms of um, publication bias, if a study looks like it's not going to be published or there's an issue with the protocol, um, oftentimes a supplement company or a pharmaceutical company will not collect all the data that they would have otherwise, and then the trial's left hanging. But you need that data because if you're looking at uh, all the evidence for a supplement, you're not just going to look at the p-value in one trial. Um, unless they did a Bayesian analysis in that particular trial, you need to go back and look at other studies. And that includes the studies that were not published in clinicaltrials.gov, maybe because they didn't have, they didn't show a cool effect. So now I look at PubMed, clinicaltrials.gov, um, you know, there's some other institutions like us, Natural Standard has some, some monographs too. Um, and I try to find, I go from meta-analysis on down. And meta-analysis does hide a lot of data. You know, it's, you can't just look at a meta-analysis and say, this showed that there is no effect, so the supplement is worthless, or vice versa. Uh, you really have to dig down, and that's where I think it's really hard as a layperson if you have 10 or 15 minutes at night after your job and you're, you know, thinking about whether you should take vitamin D and fish oil. There's so much information, and there's really no, you know, very accurate way to digest all of that within a few minutes. And I think you really have to learn some of the basics of research in order to know yourself whether a claim is true. Yeah, I mean, it's a real problem, isn't it? Because, of course, largely the way this stuff gets taken is because some guy or gal is on the front cover of a magazine with a six-pack and, you know, looks rather attractive and they're holding up a bottle or something and saying, I take this or... You know, it's because of what someone said or my buddy or the bro down the gym or whatever. And actually, invariably, it's got nothing to do with uh, good, solid evidence. In fact, uh, recently uh, we had some lectures uh, uh, on our uh, ISSN diploma program uh, about the uh, placebo effect. Uh, mm -hmm. And um, I mean, did you, uh, I'm not sure this is your area, but... I mean, what you know is what do you think about the placebo effect, and is that is that a factor that we should bear in mind? Yep. So, um, actually, I was somewhat indirectly involved with the project a few years ago, looking at uh, placebo effect for acupuncture, and that's one area that's really interesting because, in terms of alternative medicines, um, some things. Uh, have you heard of Reiki? I think that's how you pronounce it. Energy Reiki. healing. Yeah, energy healing. Yeah. So, um, you know, if you think about what a control would be for Reiki, yeah. then it's extremely easy. So a Reiki control would just be having a non-certified Reiki practitioner waving his or her hands over your body and then seeing if you have an effect, right? Um, acupuncture, sometimes they say it's a little bit more difficult because um, you could have a, or a sham acupuncture location, but uh, it's not like Reiki where you can have an exact control 
and exactly quantify the placebo effect. For supplements, um, sometimes there's supplements like fish oil where 10, 20 years ago is more difficult because, you know, fish oil burps would be something that study participants would predict and they would think that, oh, this isn't fish oil. Um, but when we were looking at acupuncture, we saw that the majority of East Asian trials used a less rigorous uh, control and therefore almost the entire effect was uh, accountable by the placebo effect when you look between studies. Um, it would be cool to do that same type of analysis on certain supplements because uh, there's a bunch of supplements that have effects, you know, like, you know, some liquid stain your teeth, some supplements uh, cause some laxative effect, um, and it's kind of tough to, to do a control in, in that case. But the placebo effect for taking a supplement that is a colored pill or a supplement that has neat packaging or a supplement that your doctor tells you to use is huge. Um, there's an Australian researcher named Lorimer Mosley who does pain research, and uh, he summarized some studies about different types of placebos and how, uh, for example, if you are a physician and you give your patient a medication and you uh, pat them on the back when you give them the medication, it works like 30% better. And that's just because the manner in which you give the medication is different. So depending on what the supplement is or how you give it or what the marketing is, the placebo effect could be good enough that it almost doesn't matter. I mean, if it works, it works, right? On the one hand, it's not good to have a bunch of useless supplements around. On the other hand, if it somehow crazily works for you, at least for a few weeks or months, then good enough. Yeah, no, I'm a big believer. In fact, uh, I like to use the placebo effect to a certain extent. I think it's a powerful thing insofar as I, I don't like to rule it out um, as an important factor when considering telling someone that the supplement they're taking is an utter waste of time my mm -hmm. thought process particularly with my team sport athletes is you know s numerous members of the team might be you know uh, uh, international players and they're taking a supplement so a junior member of the team's like well I mean I should be taking that supplement because he's taking that supplement and look at him he's you know amazing the minute you take that supplement away it does play on their minds you know oh my performance isn't going to be so good and it does yeah. translate you know and it's just a funny thing but you know um i think this is sort of moves me on to another thought which is let's say we've chosen the right products for the right reasons which of course is a minefield uh, for the reasons mm -hmm. you've you've well explained but let's just say we've actually chosen the right products for the right reasons and we've done our research then you've got this whole other problem of uh, well what about the product itself, um, you know, the manufacturing process, the delivery mechanism into the body. Uh, I mean, that is in itself a big area of, of concern, isn't it? Yeah. Um, that's huge because, you know, let's say creatine. Um, it's been, I don't know, two decades, maybe two, three decades since creatine started being popular. Creatine monohydrate is really the creatine you would take if you were to take creatine. There are so many forms, dozens on the market now with dubious claims. And it's insane because the laws in the U.S. are such that if you phrase things the right way, you could say that, you know, uh, our revolutionary effervescent creatine and whatever form that you take five times a day uh, can possibly have these effects. 
based on you know uh, in vitro st- or a uh, uh, petri dish study, and there is no way to to divide that from good evidence. And I don't. The only the only way to get around that is to have a source of information that you look at as far and some basic uh, knowledge of the research process. And I wish that was something that was taught as early as, you know, middle school or high school because it's just not something that ever comes up, like logic. You know, I don't know if I don't know if any school systems around the world ever teach logic, but logical fallacies are something that would, you know, save possibly countless lives because when you end up um, taking a supplement that, you know, your money could be going down the drain and it could have some um, detrimental effects. It's often easy just to look at their marketing claims and use very basic logical tests to see that it's it's bullshit. Yeah, I I, uh, I remember it was either a newspaper or which magazine or Reader's Digest. I don't remember what it was, but this is quite a long time ago. It's a good 10, 15 years ago. But I remember there was a report. And I think it was like at a rock concert or uh, some public event where they had... Um, you know those those uh, in the UK we call them portaloos, but you know the outside mm-hmm. sort of toilets that look a bit like a old-fashioned British phone box. You know the, uh, the those uh, uh, really quite disturbing places where we need to go and uh, have a pee. Yeah, a bit smelly. Or a number two. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, somebody uh, had the bright idea of um, actually filtering through all the waste and. Um, uh, what they discovered was huge numbers of uh, pills uh, in the uh, in you know in in the uh, in the suit in the sewer or whatever it was, oh. and uh, it was a lot of them was uh, 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 one or two particularly well-known brands of nutritional supplements, and to the point these are obviously been ingested, gone through the digestive system, and been pooped out, ended up in in this sort of portable toilet system, uh, and uh, still. Not only were they intact and hadn't digested, disintegrated, or anything, they, you could even still read the brand on the tablet wow. itself. So that is something which, you know, maybe that's a bit extreme, and I, I don't know how much of that still goes on. Um, but in terms of the manufacturing processes of a pill, um, of a capsule, um, a, a, of a gel, I mean, can you just take us through anything that you're aware of there? Like, you know, we've heard of, uh, like in the States, you've got your good manufacturing practices. They have to be tested for uh, disintegration. And then, you know, other things, analyses from batch to batch about what's on the product is even in, you know, what's on the label is even in the product. And, of course, that's another area, isn't it, where uh, oftentimes um, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's not even... You're not taking what you think you are, and certainly not in the dosage. Yeah, um, I would say that there's things that you can tell from the label, and there's things that you'll never be able to tell. So, things that you can tell from the label that might be off in terms of uh, manufacturing are like if you get a typical bottle of magnesium from a pharmacy or a supplement store, I'd say maybe around a quarter of the time. It's uh, it says in the uh, nutrient facts that it's got magnesium oxide and magnesium blank, you know, whatever chelate. So they don't have to put what ratio or what proportion of oxide and, and other chelate they have. So 
oftentimes they'll put a very low portion of the magnesium chelate and over half of it is magnesium oxide, which isn't really absorbed. Um, and then you end up getting not very much magnesium and you end up getting some diarrhea. So that is something where they didn't technically do anything wrong, but they just weren't very upfront about their manufacturing. On the other end is things that you can't predict. So for example, a, a large number of herbal supplements, um, even if they put good manufacturing practices on the bottle, they either underdose, overdose, or have none of it at all and have a different type. Um, sometimes that's because uh, the herb is grown you know, in different areas. I don't know if, uh, if in the UK you have this situation with foods where like a packaged food will say uh, the oil is uh, cottonseed oil or soybean oil or corn oil and they'll just use whichever one is cheapest at the time, but they'll list all of them on the package. Yeah. So that could be the case with certain supplements, herbal supplements too. Like if an herb is grown in Central America and the U.S. and somewhere else, they'll use whatever herb is available. And that herb is not the same as an herb that is grown elsewhere. Some of that could be because of growing conditions. Like uh, you might have heard of how selenium levels vary drastically based on uh, where food is grown. So the same can be true of herbs. The potency of herb could be different. Um, and then sometimes they'll just screw up and they'll use, for example, a root instead of a leaf a little bit. Or if they do an extract, they'll have the wrong uh, proportion in their extract. So um, I don't is it Consumer Labs? There's a few different uh, sites that look at whether the potency lives up to the nutrition labeling or to the um, nutrition facts. But that's only for very well-known supplements. For lower tier supplements, you'll basically never find out. So the only way to know for sure is to start low and then titrate higher. Because if you end up getting a supplement that has more of it than you're bargaining for, you could end up having some pretty severe side effects. Yeah, no, I I, I mean, I, I would imagine even for those of our listeners that are pretty clued up on nutrition, much of what we're discussing here is going to be a bit of a surprise or shocking because it's just, you know, these supplements look pretty innocent, don't they? You just, it's it really is a big minefield. Um, so whilst we're going down this path, let's talk about the idea of supplement uh, ingredient interactions, uh, both positive and negative. So of course you've got your um, interactions between certain uh, vitamins or minerals which uh, might compete with each other for uptake um, mm-hmm. and then um, uh, or, or, uh, or you know may actually block absorption uh, or certain foods which of course may block the absorption of certain uh, supplements that we uh, or, or components within a supplement um, and uh, of course uh, something we should be very mindful of and perhaps some examples if we can remember everything here on my list um, of some potential uh, drug nutrient interactions um, which may be uh, you know a couple of the most common ones so um, there's a few things that interact positively so synergistic supplements or nutrients um, and that's always uh, very pleasant to learn about because um, you know, if if two things interact well, then that's like finding a diamond in the rough because usually when things interact, they don't interact very well at all. So like caffeine and L-theanine are two things where oftentimes people who are sensitive to caffeine uh, will have most or all of the side effects countered by L-theanine. Um, I'm caffeine sensitive uh, and I've always been since I was a kid. So 
I had one cup of coffee when I was 11 years old, and it destroyed me. I don't know, days, weeks. I feel weeks, so I, sorry for you. I love coffee. And, yeah. And I, I want to be in the in the coffee culture. You know, I want to hang out in cafes. I live in San Francisco. It would be great, but I can't do that. So, um, But taking caffeine with L-theanine totally normalizes it. So I'm a low-caffeine metabolizer, at least according to my 23andMe genetic profile. And, uh, and that's always been true. And I found that if I take caffeine even close to bedtime, if I combine it with L-theanine, then I get the focus benefits uh, without any of the jitteriness. So... Uh, those are two things that are beneficial to take together, but a lot of other things, the story is more complicated. So zinc and copper, for example, um, are two very important minerals to take. Um, zinc for a bunch of reasons and copper for heart health. Um, but zinc and copper not only work together, like in uh, the endogenous antioxidant system, but they compete. Um, so if you take too much zinc, then you could have issues with copper and vice versa. So oftentimes people will take all their minerals together because, you know, you want to take all your supplements together and not have to space them out over the day and have your life be ruled by your supplementation. Uh, but that's not really a great idea because some things are better taken during the AM, you know, for circadian rhythm purposes, some things are better taken in the PM. Um, so zinc and copper are two things that you probably shouldn't take them together, um, as well as calcium and a few other minerals. Um, and while we're on that topic, um, at Examine, we tried to find if uh, there were any studies about vitamin D and timing, and we didn't actually run across anything. So if any of your listeners know, then feel free to email us. But um, anecdotally, vitamin D seems to be something that maybe if you take it in the daytime, it has a better effect than taking it at night. Um, there's been some speculation that that could be because, you know, we produce vitamin D in the daytime from our skin. So maybe it's uh, more in line with how we produce it naturally. Um, and some people report that if they take vitamin D before they go to bed, then they either have strange dreams or they can't fall asleep. Uh, but anyway, that's something that I personally think about. Yeah. Um, so vitamin D is also synergistic um, or antagonistic with certain nutrients. So um, if you take vitamin D, you should definitely take vitamin K, um, either vitamin K2, uh, MK4, MK7. Um, so a lot of the fat-soluble vitamins work together, um, and those are two of them. Vitamin D, obviously, um, and, and calcium work together. Um, and vitamin D and vitamin A also work together. So vitamin D has um, a lot of nutrients that it interacts with, which is not surprising because receptors are found all over the place. Um, as far as uh, supplements and medications, um, mood supplements interact with a lot of stuff uh, because they interact with dopamine, um, a bunch of neurotransmitters. So St. John's wort, which might be the first or second most taken mood supplement, um, and birth control, um, is something to watch out for. So a lot of women, let's say 30, 20, 30, 40-year-old women um, are on birth control. And uh, there's, I don't know if there's a name for this, but uh, a lot of women are a little bit overweight, um, have some uh, joint aches and pains that could possibly be classified as fibromyalgia. Um, and then they end up taking some mood-related supplements like St. John's wort. Uh, that's a bad recipe because St. John's wort could make your birth control ineffective and then when you end up with a surprise baby um, you know it's not really worth uh, experimenting with St. John's work for that so it's important to always tell your physician but not just that your physician probably won't know about everything it's going to do your own research uh, so have a couple sources if you're taking any medication and list out everything that you're taking to make sure there's not interactions yeah there's some good points and very wise advice there so 
<clears throat> look we're uh, almost at the end here i can't believe how time's flying this is such a fascinating topic i've got a feeling you could talk for hours here so um we'll obviously have to get you back again but just a final sort of point um just just to clarify just in case some of the listeners are not mistaking which direction we're going with here i mean we're not saying that supplements are bad uh we're not saying that you shouldn't take supplements we're obviously saying you need to think very carefully about what you're taking and why you're taking it and how you're taking it and so on but do you have any sort of sort of closing thoughts about supplements generally and how we should be looking at them as they fit into our sort of day-to-day lifestyle Sure. Um, I'd say the most important thing about supplements is to, before you consider any supplement, to take account of your situation. So um, my situation would be different, for example, than your athletes because your athletes are trying to perform at their best and um, are willing to experiment a little bit and take a little bit extra maybe in order to win. Uh, Whereas I'm only competing in, you know, like, just trying to live an easy life and I don't want to take anything that I don't need to take so I used to have my bucket of supplements you know my drawer that had all this shit that I was taking um, and then I ended up going to the extreme and not taking anything nowadays I take an inventory of where I am so um, I have a lot of joint pain issues that's my main thing and then I try to eat and supplement for health so what I do is I try to get everything that I can through my diet um, you know, so I try to get vitamin D through sun. I try to uh, get minerals through either uh, food rich in minerals or even hard water or mineral water. Um, and then after that, I just go on a case by case basis. So, you know, I'll experiment with, for example, 100 micrograms of vitamin uh, K2 MK7. I'll do that for a few weeks and then I'll see if MK4 for a few weeks is any different in how I feel. And then I'll pick. And while I try to do that systematically, even though I'm kind of uh, in the business of nutrient research, I still fail. Um, So it's very difficult. It's extremely difficult to note what your reaction is. So I'd say you have a leg up on everybody else if you're good at noting what your reaction is and being very selective in what supplements you use. So just don't take a bucket full of supplements because somebody else is. Be very precise and exact. And over time, it'll help. You might not, you know, become Superman overnight, but in a year or two, you'll know what works and what doesn't. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Kamal. Um, It's been not only an honor and a pleasure and fun to talk to you. uh, I've learned some fantastic points from you there, and I know that I'll be listening to this podcast again myself. Um, So, folks, that is the end of Episode 9 of the We Do Science podcast on supplement science and evidence and all things that you probably didn't know but should know um i do recommend you go check out examine.com um there's just you know just listening to this you'll clearly see that there's some evidence and ideas and information you need to check out just so you can make some sensible decisions about your own supplementation strategies and for most of you who i know are actually scientists practitioners coaches just so you can start thinking about how you're going to use supplements, whether or not they really are the things you should be spending your time on, uh, and just getting to the to grips with the whole science behind supplements. For more information about the Guru Performance, 
We Do Science podcast, please go to guruperformance.com for more information about uh, professional and postgraduate education in performance uh, nutrition, sports and exercise nutrition. Check out the issndiploma.com. Okay, Kamal, it's time for us to go. I'm uh, Laurent Bannock, and we'll catch you all again soon on a future edition of We Do Science.